Hi, I am Nicole J. Georges. I am a queer, feminist, vegan cartoonist, teacher, and advice columnist living in Portland, Oregon, with my half-blind chihuahua, Ponyo Georges. <coughs> Welcome to our podcast, Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. What's the Today on Sagittarian Matters, I'm joined by series regular Michelle T and special guest Trina Robbins. Stay tuned. Romantic question. I am in a long distance romance since moving to a new city. This is not by me. My girlfriend back home gave me condoms to take with me in case I find new lovers. The thing is, after almost a year, I finally did. I hate not telling my girlfriend the news, yet I can't figure out what level of disclosure is best. Oh, God. Oh, God. This makes me want to kill myself problems like these. I'm so happy that I don't have this problem. Well, I have to say the answer to me is pretty simple. It's... Well, what level of disclosure do you have set up? And if yeah. you don't have something set up, like, what the fuck? <laughs> well, I just, I'm um, like, does your girlfriend want to know if you're boning someone or not? I wouldn't actually the, want to know. The girlfriend gave the condoms? Yeah. So clearly she's allowed to. Did the girlfriend, like, give her the condoms with a wink and be like, can't wait to hear about it? Or, like... Was she just like handing the condoms over and was just like, hee hee hee, here we go. Okay, she finds like, you lovers. Like hee hee hee, here you go. Then like, she doesn't have to say anything. Yeah. But if it was like a like, here's a condom and let me know how it goes being sexual in the world without me, then she should probably tell her. And then also it's up to what she wants too. Like, does it totally feel weird for her to not tell her girlfriend that she's sleeping with someone Then she should tell her girlfriend? I think if it's going to affect the vibe, that's important. If yeah. it's going to affect their health, that's important. It's like, tell her now or tell her later. It's like, everyone always tells. You know what I mean? Like, Do they? This shit never gets... Yeah. I've died with a few things. Really? Yes. Oh. I'm not dead. Not dead, to clarify. That makes me wonder if I have. No, I think I'm, I'm an oversharer. I'm also an oversharer. Why would anyone even want my advice? Listen to me. I'm just like, oh, God. That's a horrible problem. I don't know. I'm glad tell I don't have that problem. Her. Tell her now or tell her later. <laughs> <laughs> Can I look up? I, had, I mean, I've had that problem. I don't mean to make it sound like I haven't had that problem. You have had that problem? Yeah. What did you do? What, what like, um, did you have something set up where your partner wanted to know? No, it was sort of like, don't ask, don't tell. It was like, not. I was dating somebody who was actually... Um, in a long-term relationship like I was the other person but we got real like intense and serious even though she was still with her her LTR yeah and so like I didn't want to know every time she was hitting it with her girlfriend who she lived with you know what I mean so I just figured like I didn't ask like oh did you did you guys just spoon last night or did you like go down (laughs) on her or what like I didn't want to know that I didn't want to know if they were spooning I just kind of pretended it wasn't happening and then she it was like pride and she, of course, because this is when all these kind of things happen. And then she went, she she was with her girlfriend in Pride. Because it was kind of like that thing where it's like the holiday that you spend with your primary, you know. Yeah. Pride. So I was just like, that's cool. Um, and I hooked up with this person who was really hot, who I'd wanted, who I'd wanted to hook up with for like a million years. And and I wasn't going to say anything, but I think it was like, I think I had a hickey. Like, I think I was kind of like, oh, yeah. just kind of got a little sloppy about it or slash and or it was that thing where she's just like so did you have a good pride and I was all yeah <laughs> you know what I, it just was kind of awkward and so then I told her it was horrible oh it was horrible it was horrible of course it, it was everything, it ruined everything and yeah it just was so dumb it's like she she didn't want to know I mean she wanted to know but she didn't want to know and I was just like, it made me so mad and resentful. Like, I, you know, you're the one who has a girlfriend. I can't even believe, like, the one time I actually slept with someone who's not you. Like, you're ruining my my fucking pride. 
you know? Yeah. And I just cried. And once I stopped crying, I can't stop crying. Especially that was before I was on, medica- on medication. Oh, no. so I, I So I couldn't stop crying once I started. And I had to go to a movie at the Gay Film Festival. And I wore big, dark sunglasses through the whole movie, like Anna Wintour. <laughs> just like some, like, betrayed French woman at a fashion show. <laughs> I, wore, I wore sunglasses the whole time. It was terrible. And then... I had, and yeah, it just was, and then it was the beginning of the end because then it was like, one, I had been really good about keeping my, like, my jealousy in check, but then once that happened, I couldn't stop being jealous in the sort of resenty way. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Being like, oh, how do you make, think it makes me feel to see your girlfriend on the lusty lady float? Uh, and you're cheering for her, you know, or you're <laughs> on the float with her, like, whatever gay problem I had at that time. And, but this isn't about me, Nicole. This is about, okay, so our, this person wants to know if they should tell their girlfriend. Well, I think that they should tell their girlfriend if that's part of their arrangements. But if it's Can not part of their arrangement, they shouldn't. Yeah, we do need more information. I wish that we could call them, but they didn't even leave a message. They just texted it like a oh. coward. I'm <laughs> <laughs> calling my readers a coward. If this is, I know, you're really not going to help your ratings with these attitudes. Um, I think that unfortunately like this was something that should have been clarified way like she's been out of town now for a year it's presumably trying to hook up with people so i don't understand why she hasn't clarified this sooner because now she's like hey do you want to know if i hook up with her like her girlfriend is clearly going to be like why because you hooked up with someone so it's like she should have figured this out before it was a loaded a loaded question i've always opted for don't ask don't tell and i think that that's rubbed different people different ways but if it's not going to affect me, then I don't need to, yeah. like, be rolling it around in my mind, you know? Because th- no one's telling me, like, <sighs> and then we do this. Like, a sexy way? It's always somebody being awkward, <laughs> being like, uh, uh, I'm so, I'm tell you which talk, you know? Or <laughs> which is not hot or fun. or No. Then another time I also didn't I didn't tell somebody and it felt really weird to have this big secret and not tell the person even though that was fine to do that and I think that's what our agreement was but um I wasn't I'm sure it was or else I would have had to tell but um but then it's also really weird for me to be close to someone and not share things like that Mm -hmm. so then I ended up telling but then the real problem was then I was in a public space with the my primary (laughs) and then the person I had slept with showed up wearing like stupidest hat it was like (laughs) such a bad hat like they could have been wearing anything else they could have looked like a million bucks from like their eyebrows down to like the tip of their toes this hat was so dumb that anyone who had left the house in it was just operating on a different plane than like me and my primary person and, and everybody else I think in the room and so and so it was just kind of like my my person was like that's the person you had sex with that guy with the hat and I was like yeah and I just felt so dumb and ashamed. And, and then I was, like, kind of dissing the person who was wearing the hat because I was so mortified that we had slept together. And then, and then I felt like a bad person. Like, you're so shallow. Like, you actually slept with this person twice. Like, you had intimate time with them. And, like, you're t- totally icing them in public because they're wearing this weird, like, floppy velveteen hat that, that they should have never worn out. And in one sense, it's their own fault for doing that. But... Your hat shaving. It was such a bad hat. (laughs) Why would they wear that hat? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) But it's like that's the whole. That's what fucking happens when you open your relationship. When you involve yourself in situations like this, you like (laughs) fuck someone you've always wanted to fuck on Pride, and everything falls to shit. Or the person that you just had sexy time with shows up wearing something fucking so stupid, just so dumb, that like, and everyone know, and you already told everybody that you slept with them because you were high on dopamine for like five seconds. You're like, oh, I did it with that person. You're fucking bragging because you're a narcissist. And it, it all falls apart. Have a single partner in the same city that you live in the of the day. That's my advice to you. Come on. Unless you're in your 20s and then you're supposed to do things like this. You're supposed to have sex with people who wear dumb hats. Oh my god! You're supposed to sabotage your relationship on Pride. The hat is the deal breaker, huh? Like he could have bounced back from the hat because he was really cute and a really nice person. But um, I just hate being in messy polyamorous situations, and so yeah. I just, I just, I just couldn't handle it. Sometimes, uh, depending on the people and the situation, it can be like a lot more drama or processing than you need. 
um, yeah. for some people that's worthwhile and they need a lot of love, but yeah, yeah, totally. So people get really into it. I just felt like, Oh, like I've just had this realization, like this person is a human being who will want like emotional things from me as people do when they have sex with each other and get, develop crushes. Yeah. And I am already have my hands full with my dysfunctional primary relationship. And like, I can't, I can't do it. And it just like terrified me. I was like, Oh my God, this person's going to actually need something emotionally from me. And yeah. I just could, I could see the future. And it just, uh, mm-hmm. well, so I, it, was, it wasn't just the hat. Last week I got a call from somebody who was just entering into something where they were basically the secondary <clears throat> to a primary relationship. And they were like, I don't know if this is for me. I've never done this before. You know, like I don't, I, I feel neglected sometimes. I don't know if it's okay. And our advice was, you know, take stock of what you need in a relationship and see if yeah. this fits it and if you can do all the things necessary for this to work. But I also wanted to tell them, you get a say too. I feel like somebody coming into that kind of thing, like dating somebody who already has a primary, might get bombarded with their rules that they already have and maybe yeah, not maybe. advocate for themselves as an emotional human being. Yeah. In that situation totally. where, like, someone else has rules, guess what? You also get to have rules. Yeah. Like, someone else has boundaries, that doesn't mean you don't get to have boundaries. And that's yeah. for every situation, but yeah, specifically totally. for that. I need, to under, I need to explain the Butch Baby Ranch. Yeah which is for, for butch women who uh, maybe don't feel so comfortable about the feminine qualities of their bodies mm-hmm. who want to get pregnant. Yeah. And when you get pregnant, your body is really like, Love. you're going to be all boobs, all belly, yeah. like your labia is going to fall out of your underwear. Get ready. <laughs> yes, sister, it will. <laughs> get ready to be flagging, you know, woman, 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 like femininity all the time. Yeah. And maybe you're a masculine person. You feel uncomfortable with that. You've been yeah. trying to like tamp down your boobs for quite some time. Yeah. This is a safe space for you. You go away to Nicole's Butch Baby Ranch. Oh God. You can, if you want to wear a muumuu, you can, you want to wear a Carhartt's. It doesn't matter because it's just butches. Uh, well, there'd be like a comfortable clothes closet. Yeah. Comfortable yeah. clothing closet. Yeah. Oh my God. Just gestating butches, hanging out with each other. And then I could be the administrator or if that was inappropriate for them. You know, I could have a masculine, you know, gendered person as the administrator. Who knows what would be more or less triggering? I don't know. But they could you just, know. if they needed, you know, I, I could walk through or their partners could come visit or their partners could come stay, but they could be out of the eye of society until they, you know, feel comfortable again. They can fit back into their binders or whatever, however, or get a new binder or so whatever the like thing postpartum is. postpartum services also well, yeah. at Nicole's Butch Baby Ranch? Well, yeah, yeah, you know, maybe, you know, while they're uh, breastfeeding or whatever. So then they could come back and they just look like some buff dude that just had this baby who's like, oh, hey, I just had this, this baby. Is so like, genius. This I'm, is so genius. Thank whenever you. Whenever you say ranch, it makes me think of the ranch in, um, oh God, what is that amazing lesbian movie? I don't know. Some wild desert hearts. Yes, desert hearts. I didn't even see that. I just saw it at the feminist bookstore. Desert hearts is actually kind of an amazing movie, but it's like takes place in what is it like the fifties or something when when divorce was like not it was like hard to get, but you could go to Nevada and get an easy one, but you had to stay on the ranch. That's my inspiration. Okay, good. Oh my god, divorce ranches. Yes, yes. This is great. I wanted to be like a divorce ranch, but for butchers who wanted to get pregnant. I guess what we need to know is. How many butchers are out there that would take advantage of this so you know that there is a demand and you can show that demand to potential investors? So if you are a butch and you're looking to get knocked up, but what's really holding you back is the public scrutiny of your body. And if you think that Nicole's Butch Baby Ranch is really what would totally make having a baby feasible for you, get in touch. Can they call that number? Yeah, they can call my hotline. Call Nicole's hotline and tell her that you would be a, a guest at the baby ranch. Here's my hotline number, 971-361-9998. I promise not to answer the phone. Um, that brings up two things for me. One, Shark Tank. We can book... <laughs> Hi, Shark. Hey, Sharks. Oh, my God, so you could present this to them? I could have... Uh, well, maybe I could have A.K. Summers, who maybe will be a future yes. guest, who did the book Pregnant Butch. Yes. And A.K. can be like, you know, in the year 1998 or whenever A.K. decided to get pregnant, in the year 2004, I wanted to have a baby. But as a masculine-gendered person, what was I to do? I didn't want to be in public looking like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. we could talk about, we could show panels from AK's book where she's yes. like, you know, no one sat down for me on the subway because they just read me as a pregnant, as a fat guy. Oh, God. Not a pregnant lady because I still had a crew cut. Um, yes. She could talk about all these things and then I could be like, so we, we've created the Butch Baby Ranch. And then... <sighs> 
Can you just see all of the sharks just staring blankly? <laughs> like their minds will be so blown. Like how how much like preliminary education do the sharks need to even begin to comprehend <laughs> the baby ranch concept? I don't know. They'd be Which like, what do you think would go for it out of all the sharks? Maybe the guy who did Fubu. I don't know. Oh, or I like him. I like the guy who did Fubu. Or I think or one of the ladies. Like the be, QV, crazy QVC lady. The QVC She's lady. like selling the Butch Ranch on QVC. That's it. You got to get the Butch Ranch onto QVC. How do we do that? You She's couldn't. Like, it's ridiculous. You're sitting at home. You don't want to leave the house because you're afraid. <laughs> nothing fits you. Nothing looks right. Huh. I don't know how much preliminary education. Like, I think that Mr. Wonderful would be like, you know, we're just getting did, used to gay did marriage. Did a spider just land on me, like fall out of the sky onto me, and then I brushed it away? You just killed We're in Oregon right now, you guys, and there's spiders. Trina Robbins is a pioneer of women's comics. She contributed to and helped put together the first all-female underground comics, It Ain't Me, Babe, and women's comics, starting in 1970. She was also one of the only vocal female feminist voices against misogynist underground male cartoonists of the time. She drew a poster that I love that people could put in their windows when Angela Davis was on the run that said, Sister, you are welcome in this house. Um, In case... Angela Davis wanted to seek refuge anywhere in America or around the world. Trina Robbins has drawn Wonder Woman. Trina Robbins is a female comics historian, one of the few. And she came on my podcast on the occasion of Fanographics releasing a giant box set of women's comics from 1970 to 1992, which is a true delight. I also want to tell you that she sewed a garment for Mama Cass before. So if that's not enough for you to like Trina Robbins, I don't know what it is. She is a truly lovely individual, and I was really happy to have her on the podcast. Hi! Hi! Thanks for being on the podcast. I am delighted. I'm so happy this book came out. These books. I am so happy they came out. Yes. So, um, you know, but I will tell my listeners that I met you because I wanted to put out these books a couple of years ago after um, I was at the Center for Cartoon Studies and Steve Bissett lent me a giant stack of women's comics and It Ain't Me, Babe, and Tits and Glitz. And it was the best thing I had ever read. And I couldn't believe that they weren't reprinted in full. So then I was like, I have to go track down Trina Robbins because I have to make sure these get put out. And then we went to breakfast and then you said, Fanographics is already doing it. And I felt so relieved. Yes, of course. Everything good eventually gets reprinted. Thank God. Um, Let's start way, way, way back and then we'll come to the present. Um, So I, even now as a, female cartoonist I feel like I feel the repercussions of our crumb style misogyny kind of around me and in the psyches of cartoonists that I encounter so I want you you oh I'm sorry you think it's still there tell me give me some examples I don't know I if you don't mind me interviewing you go on please interview me (laughs) um Uh I guess just the idea of a lot of a lot of people hold him in very high regard because he's an excellent draftsman and because he helped originate underground cartoon comics but his images are so violent and so intense that it's really hard for me to hear people talk about how he's the best cartoonist ever when I think about all the people that are kind of squashed down in his work or you know shown poorly in his work but is that misogyny I don't I th- I don't know. It's it I don't know. The idea of somebody saying like this borderline racist art or this like sexist art is one of my favorite artists makes me feel weird. I guess. I really wonder how many people have seen it was it was his early stuff, the stuff he did in the 70s and 80s that was the most offensive. And I wonder how many people have seen that, aside from a group of aging fans. That's a 
That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, those things are burned into my mind, as strong comics can be. So those are things I think about when people are, like, worshipping at the altar of this person. Yeah. But so, okay. Well, I'll go ahead. No, well, I mean, it's undeniable that he's an excellent draftsman and a really good artist. Uh, but it's also undeniable that in the 70s and 80s, he he drew stuff that basically, unfortunately, influenced the underground so that the entire underground, not the entire, but an awful lot of the underground, felt they had to do misogynist, violently misogynist stuff too. Well, so then I wonder for you, I mean, that seems that seems like a very unwelcoming climate for female cartoonists or people of color. So then how did you make your space? It was extremely unwelcoming. And the fact that I objected to this kind of art, not just crumbs, but underground in general, that I said rape isn't funny, torture and and degradation of women is not funny and they would say well you have no sense of humor and it's just satire um so that didn't make me popular with the guys and they didn't invite me into their books or into their social lives or into their parties um so uh well okay what period are we talking about now I guess I was thinking about the climate of when you started women's comics or when you started working with an ain't me babe so the very earliest 70s. So what happened in 1970 was, I mean, these guys were not printing me. Uh, but the I had come from New York to San Francisco, uh, which was supposed to be the mecca of underground comics. And luckily, what happened was the underground newspapers heard I was here, that I was in town. And they phoned me and asked me to contribute to their newspapers. So I wound up... Um, First, I would come, uh, it was the Berkeley Tribe, the Red Mountain Tribe, which was an an offshoot of the Berkeley Barb. And every, um, I guess every couple of weeks when they would do their layouts and paste-ups, I would come to the office and just draw little spot illustrations, you know, right there. You know, we, we need this, we need an illustration this size, and I would just draw it. And, you know, I think I was paid the grand sum of like $20. I don't remember now, but it was not a lot of money. But that wasn't the point because I needed to be printed and I needed someone to want to publish me. Um, And it was shortly after that that I saw the first issue of It Ain't Me Babe, which I have since found out was the very first uh, feminist underground newspaper in the country. And I had not realized that. I thought it was the first in the West Coast. Um, But it was the first in the country. And I phoned them and I said, you know, I'd like to contribute. Um, And we met at a B&N in Golden Gate Park. And I was wearing a T-shirt I had designed that had an angry-looking superheroine on it and said Super Sister. And they thought the T-shirt was really cool. I've looked for the T-shirt. I can't find it. I don't know where it is. It's somewhere in the house. But anyway, they said, yes, join us. So at that point... I was, you know, I said a tearful, really not a tearful, but a thank you, a thankful goodbye to the Red Mountain Tribe and started going, attending layout and paste up days at the, um, at It Ain't Me Babe in Berkeley. Um, I did a comic for them, a back page comic. I did a number of covers and a number of interior illustrators, and it was really, it was great to work with people I felt good about, you know, who were feminists. It was fantastic. And at a certain point, I finally felt brave enough with with the, the moral support of these women that I could put together the world's first, the universe, universe's first, the world's first, um, all-woman comic book. And that was at Ain't Me Babe, 1970. Oh, my God. I feel, you're, you're like a, a dreamboat to me. Like, the idea that you did these things just fills me with so much joy as, as a female cartoonist. You know, any of these things without role models and without people treading the path before me, it's, it's harder to be able to see what is possible. It's very hard to see what's possible. Not anymore, though. No, we're in a really different time. And 
I, I feel like I almost have to go out of my way to tell students or younger people, like it wasn't that long ago that things were radically different. 1970 to me seems like yesterday, but it's fantastic. You know, never in my wildest dreams, I swear to you, had I ever dreamed that there would be so many women in comics that there would be more women publishing graphic novels than men. And that is fantastic. Is that the case right now? Yeah. Yes. That's awesome. Um, I wanted, of course, to talk about how you published the first lesbian comic. Ah, uh, yes, Sandy Comes Out. Sandy Comes Out. Um, and then did you get guff from lesbians for publishing the first lesbian comic, or were they happy? Because you were not a lesbian, uh, but it was about a lesbian. Okay. Okay, Sandy was my roommate, and I just... I. For the first issue of women's comics, I thought it would be cool to tell her story. <clears throat> so I, excuse me, so I really did this with Sandy's approval. And in fact, I gave her the originals once the story was published. And which is kind of sad because Sandy died in Seattle and I don't know what happened to the originals. Mm. Um, yeah, I know. And I'm sad, I mean, I'm just sad that Sandy died to start with and that my originals are lost on top of that. But anyway, um, it was with Sandy's approval. She even suggested some of the, the, what the captions and the, what would go into the word balloons in certain parts. Um, and when I did it, I wasn't thinking in terms of, gee, this is the first comic about a lesbian. I was just thinking, I want to tell Sandy's story. It, the first comic about a lesbian bit didn't didn't even occur to me until many years later when people were saying, "Wow, first comic about a lesbian." Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I, you know, I don't know about most of the feedback, but I do know my friend Mary Wings, who published self published the first lesbian all lesbian comic book by her Come Out Comics and also Dyke Shorts, um, and I do know that Mary read women's comics and saw that comic and was in those days quite indignant and her attitude was humph this is obviously done by a straight woman how dare she how dare she talk about lesbians and so she did you know so that inspired her to do her own book so that's great and of course we're great friends now you know at the queer comics conference last may <clears throat> we were roommates and i had the greatest time with her i had fun with her I was so happy to see you guys there on the panel. And then I had you come to my class at the California College yes. of the Arts. That was such a treat. And was it in your slideshow where you showed the Angela Davis slide? The yes, yes, yes. Did you draw that? that? One... Yes, of course I drew that. Oh. Why would I show it if I hadn't drawn it? I couldn't it? remember that if it was, was you one... or Mary that heard that. that no, was it was me. It was the back cover for one of the issues of It Ain't Me, Babe. And the idea was you were supposed to put it up on in your front window to let her know because she was, you know, she was wanted by the police. <clears throat> Excuse me. And nobody knew where she was. So my romantic notion is there she is, you know, walking down the street, you know, with the, her coat collar turned up and she sees the sign and she knocks on the door and whoever you know, has put the sign up, in my case, me, you know, shelters her, shelters her from the cops. <laughs> it was a very romantic notion, but people did put it up. Oh, my God. I, I wish I had that right now. I would put it in my window. <laughs> <laughs> Even if she was, like, on, on a speaking tour or something. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Yes. If Angela Davis wanted to use my bathroom or have a glass of water. or Exactly. Angela, if just... A cup of coffee. You feel the need for a cup of coffee? See my sign? Come on over. <laughs> I'm going to start putting pictures of other people who I would like to stop in in my window, too. <laughs> so soon you won't even be able to see in or see out because I'll have pictures of different <laughs> people. I'll be like, Obama, are you on a, on a visit? Oh, he's definitely, if he can use my bathroom anytime. <laughs> would you like to pet a chihuahua? Come into my house. Um, well, so then I was going to ask, after you started publishing, um, after you started publishing It Ain't Me, Babe, in women's comics, did the men come around or were they threatened by what you were doing? Like, did you have to make your own space and then keep on that? Or was there a time when they wanted you in their men's club? 
Oh, they never wanted me in their men's club, never. Um, but what happened was, you know, in the beginning, it was a small group of guys. I mean, you could count the underground cartoonists in San Francisco on the fingers of, okay, maybe both hands, but that would be it. You wouldn't need any more fingers than that. But as, as the comics industry grew larger, as more people, you know, started doing comics, doing their own comics, by the end of the 70s, by even the middle of the 70s, there were a whole bunch of new guys doing comics, and they didn't know that I was supposed to be a man-hating feminazi bitch, so they liked me. Um, and so they invited me into their comics. Oh. So it was really a short period. It was just the beginning of the 70s when I was kind of persona non grata. Oh, wow. And then what happened with um, all the women you were affiliated with? Did you all end up sticking together when it came to conventions and publishing or? That was cool, really. Um, you know, because when we did women's comics, there were still so few women in the industry. Um, and the first, um, I guess it was called the Berkeley Con. I don't remember now, but it was the first underground comic convention. And we were all there. We did a panel. Not only us, but the tits and clits ladies showed up. Because what was so cosmic, it's, it's California really, was that on either side of this state, at the same time, there were women who finally decided they wanted to react to the sexism and misogyny in men's comics by putting out their own comics. And we didn't even know about each other. We didn't know about tits and clits till it appeared on the newsstand. And they didn't know about us. And of course, they came to the Berkeley Con, I think it was 1973. And, you know, we all made friends. We loved each other. I love that so much. I love both of those books. I can't even imagine being able to, you just go to the newsstand and then you see all of a sudden, oh, a different radical feminist comic book of people that yes. live a few hours away. Oh, no big deal. Great. And then, so... You had uh, Mary Wings and the people that are doing lesbian comics. Yes. And you had women's comics and you had tits and clits. Yes. And you all were allies for each other? I would say so, sure, yeah. I mean, like I said, yeah, there were so few of us in those days that we definitely stuck together. Um, the first com big San Diego comic convention that I went to was 77 and an enormous amount of the women's comics women were there and as were the tits and clits women Joyce Farmer and Lynn Shevley and they you know after that they we we mostly went to the San Diego conventions every year oh that's so cool I find a lot of uh, strength in numbers with ladies. strength in numbers definitely oh it's so nice to not be alone yes and were you the first woman to draw Wonder Woman is that true? No. Oh. Um, Ramona Fraden drew Wonder Woman in in the Super Friends comic book mm. in the seventies. I have an issue that she signed for me. Oh, because I, I asked my students. I'm teaching a college course right now on comics, and I wanted to know what what they wanted to know from you. And one of them said, one of them thought that you were the first woman to draw Wonder Woman. And they're like, I wonder what that felt like. But you were well, a was... woman to draw Wonder Woman. I was a woman who drew Wonder Woman. I was one of the first. I mean, certainly, I I don't know if there was someone after Ramona, but I wouldn't ever call myself the first. One of the first is fine. That's. I think that's still pretty huge. That's great. And at some point, you stopped drawing comics and focused mostly on writing comics. That's right. How that's long, what I'm doing now. How long did you draw for before you stopped, and why did you stop? I kind of stopped around the early 90s, around the same time that women's comics ended. I had, you know, I never really had a good relationship with the underground, even though later there were more people who liked me. But I just, they tended to not be my kind of people. There was a lot of drug taking, a lot of drinking. I don't drink. I don't, I haven't even smoked pot for years. Last time I smoked pot was when I was getting chemotherapy in, in 09, and it, it does help. Uh, but I haven't smoked it since. I mean, and I don't smoke cigarettes. Um, I'm a healthy person. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and 
they just, a lot of them, a lot of the underground just was not my crowd, as it were. And there was a lot of alienation between me and them. And women's comics had been my safe place. It really was. It was a place where I, I was friends with the women cartoonists, where we'd go out for coffee together. We'd hang out and it, it felt good. And then it ended. And a lot of the women just moved away. And for a brief time, I was doing maybe a single page or two for a couple of other comics, like Angela Bocage put out something called Real Girl, and I did stuff for her. But I wasn't being asked to be in other comics. I didn't have a place to go. And I just, I felt kind of like I didn't, I didn't fit. So, so it got to me, really. So at a certain point, I really couldn't pick up a pencil and look at a piece of paper to draw without feeling very stressed, depressed, um, feelings of anxiety. I mean, it wasn't good. Mm -hmm. So I turned to writing, and I love writing. I love writing, and I feel good about it, and people like my writing. I was just having to explain to someone yesterday... You know, sometimes you have to revalidate that comics are literature over and over and over again. You know, like every few years, people think like comics aren't just for kids anymore. And like they have that. tired of hearing that. Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm sure that, I bet you've heard that, that news headline probably like 50 times. Well, you, yeah. I mean, these people, the, the, the journalists who write about comics for mainstream newspapers and magazines, um, they don't know how to start any article about comics without saying, Zap Pow, comics are not for kids anymore. <laughs> I mean, please, you know, to a certain degree, that was what was wrong with mainstream comics was that they weren't for kids anymore. Yeah. You know, I mean, in the 90s, you had the bad girl comics with the, the hyper-sexualized women in their broke-back poses. This was definitely not for kids anymore. Yeah. What then? With the... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. With the... Yeah, with the advent of graphic novels, now you do have comics that kids can read. And that's wonderful. It's like I, you have, I actually feel like it, it's harder to write literature for children. You know, you have to know, be smart about writing and then know how to edit it down for kids and make it smart enough for them without, you know, like keeping that balance. Without talking down to them. Yeah. I've written a lot for kids. I've wrote a graphic novel series, excuse me, called um, The Chicagoland Detective Agency, a six-part graphic novel series, and a couple of other um, graphic novels also for younger readers. And really what it comes down to is you write what you want to write. You tell the story you want to tell, but without graphic sex and without graphic violence. And you know... If you can't tell a story without graphic sex and graphic violence, then you're not a very good writer. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I was thinking about that and the kids thing when you said that, you know, you're a writer. I mean, as a cartoonist, you are a writer. You're just employing sure. two different modes of writing at the same time. Vis yes. Visual writing and then word writing. So yes. It makes complete sense to me that you would then write, 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 and have... Of course. Of course, because I know how the pages should look. I know how the panels should look. I know how to tell a story in panels, because I've done it. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I was thinking the other day about the idea of the narration boxes serving one purpose, either um, sometimes like the narration boxes representing the brain and the pictures representing the heart of the story. Or flip flop. That's, mm -hmm. That's I was, nice. I was thinking, because you know they have to work together. So one of them is going to show you the emotional truth, and one of them is going to show you just the factual. It's almost like your sun sign and your moon sign. Uh huh. <laughs> it's like what's happening on the surface, what's happening on the inside. Well, they have to work together, of course. Yeah. That's always hard for me. And I also recently have been thinking about the idea of a page as a sentence and trying to just keep one idea on that page and see if because that's I'm, not yeah those are just recent things i was thinking of i was thinking about writing in comics and talking about it um what did i what else did i want to ask you well i want to ask you 
of course, what advice you have for young cartoonists or up-and-coming cartoonists, specifically women, because that is generally who listens to the podcast, I think. But not how do I get published, right? No, well, I just, I was like, please don't make me waste Trina Robbins' time. Tell you how to, I mean, people, that's like the question that will haunt me to my grave, and I feel happy answering it, but I have already answered it. I bet you've answered it. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> how, what advice? I mean, these are the best of times for women drawing comics, um, and it will only get better. It's not going to get worse. Just each, each advance we make in every way, in every way, in, in, in control over our own bodies, in in equal pay, every advance we make, we have to make sure it doesn't get worse. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had this. Do you did you hear about what happened at Angoulême this year? Where of they, course. I, okay, good. Just for people that don't know, um, there was this huge grand prize, like a lifetime achievement award, and they said the thirty names, and the thirty names were all men. And then they made it worse when people started yeah. boycotting them by saying, well, you know, we just can't help but not, not that many women draw comics, you see. Yes, they said that. They said that. <laughs> and they made it so much worse. It's really kind of amazing that they're, these, they're like dinosaurs, you know. There are still, just when you think that, that it's over, there are still men who are dinosaurs. They are dinosaurs, and history is not going to look kindly upon these dinosaurs. No, no. And I mean, it's already not looking kindly. But when that happened, I thought maybe there needed to be another feminist revolution or official kind of conglomeration of women cartoonists. Um, if that kind of thing happened, what, what do you think was useful? What would you bring? What do you think was useful from women's comics or from the, the thing that you built, the coalition that you built? You mean like if, if if suddenly we erected barricades and shouted to the barricade sisters and had had political meetings and stuff? Maybe, maybe yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if we really need that, uh, but if 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 that happened, I would certainly attend the meetings, and if if there was anything I needed to say, I would say it, but. Really, there are so many wonderful women cartoonists now, and they're all younger than me. There isn't one woman cartoon. Well, I mean, the mainstream, you know, Ramona Fraden and, and Marie Severin, but um, they're doing it. They're doing it. You know, it's a constant, ongoing revolution. I don't need to bring anything to it. Well, um, I think you already do, just by existing. Well, I want to say this book is beautiful, so and I will I will tell people about the books. I just got them the other day, and I couldn't believe it. I ran into my classroom with them, and the students all rejoiced because I had been, <laughs> I had been threatening to show these to them. Um, I do a slideshow for my students called Nicole's Favorite uh, Women and Queer Cartoonists. Oh, great! Because they're people that you don't hear about in the normal you know, comics classes or comics history classes. So I have a slideshow of people. Um, and then I, and I told them this book's coming out. I hope I get a copy while we're still in class. And they were so excited to see it. And I cannot wait to break out my 3d glasses. To yes. Look at the 3d issue. <sighs> what a dream. So this is a total of about 700 pages of women's comics. You should tell your students or anybody who listens to this podcast who happens to live in the Bay Area that on April 12th, we're having a signing at Green Apple Books on the Park. That's in San Francisco on 9th Avenue. It's called On the Park because it's a block away from Golden Gate Park. Mm -hmm. uh, that will be at 730. And a lot of us original women, I always like to pronounce it women yeah. with an I, mm -hmm. um, that will be there to sign the book and talk about it. Cool. Excellent. I will definitely tell people to go there. And then you guys will be at, S you'll be at SPX. Is that true? Yes, I will be at SPX. And, and so will Fantagraphics. And so will the Women's Comics Collection, which means I'll be sitting there at the Fantagraphics booth signing copies. Excellent. And lastly, what are you working on next? Or are you working on anything next? What are your dream I, uh, projects? 
Okay, well, One Dream Project is done and simply has, has to see publication, which it will see um, in time for the San Diego Comic-Con. And that is another book that I edited. Um, it's called Babes in Arms. And it's about, it's a collection of the work of four Golden Age women cartoonists uh, who during the war, as you may know, as I bet you do know, maybe everyone doesn't know, at that during the war, the Second World War, when all the guys went off to war, the women filled their places in all the industries, in the factories, making ships, making planes, driving trucks and buses that they'd never done before. And the same thing happened in the comics industry, that for the first time, because all the guy cartoonists were young, they were draft age or they enlisted and they were overseas fighting, the women filled their places in the comic book publishers too and so that of course there are more women drawing comics now than ever before but at that point there were more women drawing comic books than there had ever been before so i picked four of the best golden age women cartoonists and collected their work in this book it's published by hermes press it's called babes in arms and what they drew it's called babes in arms because what they drew were beautiful courageous women fighting the axis fighting the fascists and the nazis fighting the bad guys and of course these were women who didn't need to be rescued by the hero well they were the heroes so it's coming out in time for san diego i'll be there to sign it it's really, I love the work of these women. So, oh, okay. So that's a dream project that's done. That's awesome. Uh-huh. <clears throat> my next dream project, do we have time for all this? Yeah. Okay. My next dream project I have just started working on. All right. I'm Jewish. My father came from a shtetl at the age of 16. He came to America from a shtetl in what is now Belarus. And he wrote in Yiddish. Um, he wrote for the Jewish language newspapers. Um, didn't get paid, so it was a lot like being an underground cartoonist. And he wrote a book, which he published in 1938, a, a book in Yiddish called Aminian Yidden und Andra Zachen, which means a bunch of Jews and other stuff, loosely translated. And... Growing up, I knew my father wrote in Yiddish. I knew he had written a book, but I didn't want anything to do with it because as a kid, I wanted to be American. I didn't want to be, you know, some Yiddish-speaking person. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of really embarrassed or ashamed that my father wrote in Yiddish. <clears throat> okay, many years later, I'm grown up. I appreciate it now. And it's, you know, he died and it's too late. I figured the book is gone. I'll never find it. You know, a book in Yiddish? What? Where will I find it? My wonderful, wonderful grown daughter found it on the internet. It has been reprinted and you can get print on demand copies from Abe Books. So I got a bunch of copies and coincidentally, it's like there's kind of a cosmic hand very often in things that happen to me in regards to, to books and comics. Coincidentally, I had started taking Yiddish lessons simply because they were they were at the, my local LGBT center in the Castro and they were free. And I said, wow, a language I've always wanted to learn, you know, since I stopped being an obnoxious little kid. Mm -hmm. um, and so I got a hold of the book. But, you know, the fact that I'm taking Yiddish lessons doesn't mean I can translate it. I had it translated. I had it translated, and I can see that what it is, it's a bunch of kind of almost word portraits of about three-quarters of the book takes place in his shtetl. <coughs> Sorry. It's about people from his shtetl that, you know, where he lived until he was 16. And the next part, which is about a quarter of the book, takes place in the Lower East Side in Brooklyn when he came to America. And I realized this has to be a graphic novel. So 
I've started working on it. I have a publisher, Hope Nicholson, who has published a couple of really, really good books and is currently publishing a book by uh, Margaret Atwood. Mm -hmm. And I just, I love her. I contributed to the book she did called Secret Love of Geek Girls, mm -hmm. which I really recommend it. It's a charming book and I'm kind of happy with my little bitty contribution. Um, and she's, she's the publisher. I, I, we're putting, we're doing a um, crowdfunding thing, Kickstarter, oh. to get money because Hope is a really small publisher. Um, I already have a cover artist. The cover artist is Willie Mendez, who was one of the earliest in 1970. The only two women drawing comics in San Francisco were me and Willie Mendez. She was a a contributor to It Ain't Me Babe Comics. She also has a couple of things, contributed a couple of pages to women's comics, but she has become a painter. Oh. Um, she has a gallery in Los Angeles, the Barbara Mendez Gallery. Uh, her art is perfect. What I wanted for the cover, I thought and thought and I thought what I really want for the cover is Chagall. But alas, Chagall is dead. So I thought, okay, who alive would be perfect? And I realized it was Willie. And she, ha we have the contract. I haven't even sent it to her yet. I just received it this morning oh. from Nicholson. But she, she, yes, she wants to do it, and I know she'll go for the contract. Um, the artists, I don't want to, because we can't afford until we get some money from Kickstarter. We can't really afford to pay them. I just want to know that they're committed to the book. Mm -hmm. So we have one artist who is doing a story on spec from the book, and that is my partner, Steve Lealoha, because how could he say no? <laughs> I, I'm, you know, but he's a great guy anyway, and he's doing, he's doing one of the stories so that we will have a cover and one story to show when we get the other artists. And I'm figuring 2017 as a publication date. That's great. Awesome. Well, I'm very happy with it. I'm really thrilled with it. I'm so happy to hear about your dream projects. Yes. Um, is there, are there any last words for my listeners? These are wonderful times. I think I just said that. These are the best of times for women drawing comics. So, you know, I'm just so happy. I'm just so happy to to have all these wonderful women. And by the way, they're all so talented that it's a good thing I stopped drawing because I could never compete with these women. Wow. Trina Robbins, you are welcome in my house. I want to put a, <laughs> I want to put a sign in my window. When I, when I pass your house and need to use the bathroom. I'll make I'll you a cup of coffee. <laughs> Great. Maybe some water. I'll say, sister, you are welcome in my house. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for talking to me for my podcast. It was my pleasure. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Panyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.